Father, what we have not, please give us. What we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. For your son's sake, I ask that you would come and speak to us through your word. Speak through me, and I pray that you would edit out my mistakes and make much of your great name today. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Holy Spirit, come and illuminate your word for your people this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. It was a snow day, but we still had class. The class was a doctoral seminar with my preaching professor, Dr. Tony Marita, whose kids had to join us because the local schools were on a two-hour weather delay. They studied quietly in the corner of the room while the grown-ups discussed the finer points of Christ-centered exposition. When 10 a.m. rolled around, Dr. Marita gave us a break so he could drive his kids to school. We would reconvene in 20 minutes or so. <clears throat> On their way out the door, Dr. Marita asked his young son Joshua a question. Now, the Marita family had adopted Joshua from Ethiopia when he was young, and I remember him as a sweet, lively boy with a 20 million watt smile. At this point, a preteen, Joshua had plans to fulfill a dual calling. He wanted to be a preacher like his daddy, and he wanted to own an ice cream shop. Back to the question. Joshua, Dr. Marita asks, do you have any advice for the preachers? Joshua got a very serious look on his face, thought for a moment, and delivered some of the best advice I've ever heard in preaching. He said, brothers, in your sermons, give the people something sweet. Dr. Marita looked at us, nodded, and said, that is great advice. And then they left for school. I want to give you something sweet in my sermon today. Uh, the reason why is because this church has been so wonderful to me and to my family. If you're, if you're just uh, catching on, uh, I'll be leaving to pastor a church in North Carolina at the end of July. Um, family Sunday will be my last uh, day here with you. And I'm going to miss you all terribly. The Lord has been so good to us over the last almost four years. You've blessed us in a thousand different ways. 
So as I considered what words I wanted to leave you with, Paul's letter to the Philippians came to mind. This morning, we'll focus on four pastoral exhortations for your spiritual well-being. I've been so encouraged by your spiritual maturity and would urge you to continue in the faith by standing firm in the Lord, by getting along in the Lord, by rejoicing always in the Lord, and by setting your mind on the Lord. These four exhortations cover much of what we need to live in Christ Jesus. So firstly, let's look at our text in verse 1. We are to stand firm in the Lord. You'll notice three different times that these uh, exhortations or commands are followed by the phrase, in the Lord. We'll get to that in a second, but it's important to note. Number one, stand firm in the Lord. Go back to verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, you probably know the old rule in preaching when you come to the word, especially when you start with the word therefore, you ought to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And so we probably do need to rewind a bit and see like the scope of this whole letter. There are a few things that are in mind, but I think he's mostly talking about the preceding verses. But um, therefore, in light of the gospel that has changed our lives, which we'll talk about, in light of the examples that we've studied so far, um, Paul has highlighted the ministry of Jesus, which we heard Skipper read about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, how he laid aside, uh, how he humbled himself, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, to, but offered himself up as a sacrifice for us so that we could stand righteous before a thrice holy God through his life, death, and resurrection. Because of that, and also in light of the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, and also Paul himself in chapter 3, and most immediately, in light of our future hope of resurrection glory, we ought to stand firm in the Lord. Let's read about that hope. Back up with me to verse 20 of chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In light of that, in light of our hope of future resurrection glory, how then should we live? That's our question. And the answer is we ought to stand firm in the Lord. To do that, we might want to understand the favored position of the local church. That's you. That's me. Here in this verse, Paul Paul piles up tender expressions to convey his love for the church. He begins with, my brothers. We, through our faith in Christ, are adopted into the same family with one another. This isn't just your church. The phrase I like to use a lot is, this is your faith family. You've been adopted in. You belong here by virtue of your faith in Christ. You are brothers and sisters together. Paul goes on, whom I love and whom I long for. This is an intense and pastoral love that Paul has for the church. I get it because I'm a pastor in a wonderful church. I love you. And I know that you love me because that's how you've treated me. 
Paul loves and longs for this church in Philippi. He calls him his joy and his crown. Uh, I used to call one of my students that. That's a, that's a lot to put on somebody, but I did it anyway. He was like, uh, it's just the student named Dylan. And I've just been walking with him since he was a, a junior in high school. I was only four years older than him when I became his youth pastor, which might be foolish, but I did it. And uh, he has, I've just watched him pursue the Lord and love his wife and love his children. And I think of people like Dylan and Neil and Brittany and Adam and Daniel and other people when I think of my joy and my crown. The reward that I get from ministry is you. Third John 1, well, there's only one chapter in Third John. Verse 4 says, there's no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. That's the pastor's joy, is to see his children in the faith walking in the truth. And he repeats, my beloved, beloved brethren here at the end of four. Paul leaves no doubt how he feels about the church, specifically the church at Philippi. And I think that we should also feel love when we read this verse. This is just a reflection of the Father's love that he has for all of the children who have been adopted into his family. This is how God loves us in Christ. He loves us, longs for us. We are his joy and his crown. We are his beloved. And we should also feel love because God gives pastors to the local church to love them. That's a blessing. Let me tell you. You, um, you guys all see Pastor Jake uh, at least once a week. You see him here on Sunday morning. And he um, delivers fantastic sermons every single week. You don't realize how spoiled you are. But I, I see Pastor Jake every single day. And I have delighted to spend almost four years every day with Pastor Jake, and I can tell you, he loves you. And he's a faithful and wonderful shepherd. And not only that, we have six other elders who love you tenderly, who yearn for you, who long for you. You ought to feel something wonderful when you hear about that. Please assume that they love you in every situation. Because I know them and I know that they do. God gives us pastors to love and care for us. So we should understand the favored position of the church. We should also take up the posture of the local, part, local church. And that posture is stand firm in the Lord. Just like Paul has stood firm as he testified about his own self in chapter 3. And he's exhorted us to stand firm in the Lord. Dr. Marita, who I already mentioned this morning summarizes it this way. He said, it's an appeal to persevere in light of our heavenly citizenship and the Lord Jesus's climactic return. Because our citizenship is in heaven, don't give up. By God's grace, keep your eyes on faithful examples and don't adopt the patterns of those who are self-absorbed. You ever met someone who's self-absorbed? That ought not be the posture of the local church. We ought to consider others more highly than ourselves. We stand firm in our own power? Of course not. We stand firm in the Lord. 
The repeated refrain we hear throughout the New Testament letters is, our citizenship is in heaven, our home is in heaven, our blessing is coming, and so in the meantime, stand firm. Live for Jesus. Don't give up. I know times will get hard and you will doubt and you will struggle and I've walked those roads and I'm here to tell you there's blessing to come when you stand firm in the Lord. Persevere. He's worth it. Your home is not here. It's to come. Your blessing is not here. It's to come. Your God is waiting for you, his joy and his crown. He's waiting to spend eternity with you. So hang in there. Stand firm in the Lord. By what power will we stand firm? Nothing in us. Not in our attendance. Not in our service our zeal, our tradition, or even our morality. Our strength comes from our union with Christ and the power of his spirit. So how then should we live? We've already mentioned we ought to stand firm in the Lord. But secondly, we ought to stand united as Christ's beloved with perseverance. So number two, the second exhortation I have for you this morning. First, we stand firm in the Lord. Second, we get along in the Lord. Get along in the Lord. Paul says as much in verse 2 in what I consider to be a top five most awkward verse in the New Testament. Read it again. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine? These letters were to be read in public in front of the whole church. The great apostle, you've been waiting on him. He sends a letter, and his representative stands up to read the letter, and he calls your name, and he says, I want you, Euodia, and you, Syntyche, to knock it off. Can you imagine how mortified you would be? Oh my goodness, that would be devastating. Imagine these ladies listening to this letter read aloud. Awkward. We don't exactly know the issue, but we know that there's some rift between these two women. We don't know the source of the tension. We don't know the source of the discord. It's probably not doctrinal. It's probably just an issue of leadership or or preference. But here's what's very clear from Paul's writing. It's not relevant. The disagreement's not relevant. What matters is their bond in Christ Jesus. What matters is the unity within the church. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now, I should make a note. That could be um, just a friendly title for some undesignated reader of this letter. We don't know. But it also could be a name. It could be a proper name. Um, Some of you may have a footnote in your Bible that that says, or loyal Syzygus, which is a great name. The Greek means true yoke fellow. Fellow worker is a, is a, a good translation, but that actually could be a proper name. We don't really know if Paul is asking a specific person to help these two women agree in the Lord, or if he um, is just, just laying it out there to somebody he's already communicated with privately. We don't know, but <clears throat> Paul does wisely avoid taking a side. Here's what we know about these women. We know that they are genuine sisters in the faith. In fact, verse, four, verse 3 says their names are in the book of life. These are Christians. 
We also know they're genuine servants. They labored side by side with Paul in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. So these are genuine sisters, genuine servants who were at odds with one another. And Paul gives the secret to reconciliation. Did you catch it? The secret, it's right there in verse 2. Agree. I don't think he's telling them to agree on the thing that they're frustrated about because what comes after agree is in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. This is actually the same phrase used in chapter 2 where we're urged to be of the same mind together. How can these women agree? By calibrating their minds in Christ. By focusing on what they have in common, not what they have at odds with one another. They, they focus on their union with Christ and their adoption into the same family, and they will agree. They can, despite their issues, agree in the Lord. But be reminded, brother and sister, to resolve our differences, we need the attitude of Christ that we read earlier, that, that Skipper read earlier. Here is an appeal Paul makes to our commonality in the Lord Jesus Christ. The secret to agreeing with your brother and sister with whom you have some confrontation is to focus on the most important thing, which is your relationship with Jesus. Agree in the Lord. If we focus on that, I bet we can let small things go. If we focus on we're in the same family, we can let small things go. When we uh, ride to school, I don't know if I've told you this yet, but when we ride to school together in the mornings, <clears throat> um, we recite something, my son and I. Every single day, we say, who are we? And he says, we're the white family. We're kind. We treat people well. We work hard. And we love Jesus. That's who we are. And I think we ought to remind ourselves in the church, who are we? We're Christ's beloved. We're his joy and his crown. We are his siblings. We are adopted into the family of God. We have one great thing in common, and that is our union with Christ Jesus. And this can help us get past any disagreement. Agree in the Lord. Sometimes, Paul tells us here, that believers have to have some mediation to reconcile with each other. That's okay. Paul asks someone unnamed or maybe named to get involved. And let me tell you the truth. There is a difference between meddling and gospel-centered reconciliation. We ought to, when we see our brothers or sisters fighting or disagreeing, we ought to help them agree in the Lord, not by getting in their business, but by helping them see their commonality in Christ and reconciling with a gospel-centered mindset. And the reason why is because unity is paramount in ministry. Unity in the church is so important. Remember, Jesus is coming soon. We don't need to be wasting time and energy in conflict with believers. Let's get past it as soon as we can. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Jesus tells us if we have disunity, we must reconcile right away. Don't waste time disagreeing with your brothers and sisters in the faith. 
Agree in the Lord. I'm not getting nearly as many amens as I thought maybe I would. That's okay. Dr. Marita, again, asks us a very sobering question. He said this, Do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of your church? You should. So should I. Here are two wonderful servants of Jesus who are at odds with each other. Every member can be a threat to unity. That should sober us up and make us want to apply Philippians 2, 1 through 11 to all of our relationships. Christ is honored by our unity. And the church is embarrassed by disunity. We must take on the mind of Christ and quickly resolve to agree in the Lord. Number three, rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. We're commanded to rejoice in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in what? This is getting repetitive now. In the Lord. Hey, let me challenge you. Try your best to run out of reasons to rejoice in the Lord. Go ahead, I challenge you. You'll never run out of reasons to rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Let your life be marked by joy. I do think there's good biblical precedent for looking at other believers as examples for certain things. And I would just encourage you, think, think in your mind of a person who is, uh, who is a believer in Christ, who's part of the faith family, who just always seems to be joyful no matter what. Be like them. I'll tell you what, I would like to have a fraction of the perpetual joy of on seal. I just want some of that spirit in me. It's okay to look at somebody and say, sister, you are always joyful. How do you do that? Rejoice always in the Lord. He repeats it for emphasis. It's that important. And I need to remind you that joy is not circumstantial. It's consequential. Joy is not circumstantial. Happiness might be. You don't get joy from your circumstances. You get joy from your relationship with Christ, from your knowledge of him. Joy is consequential because we are in Christ, because we belong to this favored faith family, we can have joy always. Our joy comes from Christ. Remember, Paul is not writing this letter from a sweet mountain cabin or beach house. He's writing this prison for, this letter from prison. The happiest, most joyful man in Rome was in prison, facing possible death. I bet if he can be joyful, you can find a way. I know it's hot outside. I hear you but there's a reason to rejoice. You might be walking through a difficult time. I hear you, but there's a reason to rejoice. You might have just gotten some bad news. I've walked that road. There are reasons to rejoice. Always in the Lord. <clears throat> what does a joyful Christian look like I think that it's described in verses 5 through 7, so let's read these again. A joyful Christian is publicly reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. <coughs> Excuse me. That word reasonable there means gentle and forbearing. 
It's the opposite of contentious and self-seeking. This is actually a qualification for elders, this same word in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm very thankful that we have seven elders and an associate pastor who demonstrate for us what it is to be reasonable, gentle, forbearing, not a brawler or a bruiser or self-seeking. A joyful Christian is reasonable. Why? The Lord is at hand. Did you see it? Verse 5, the Lord is at hand. This is our motivation. Jesus is coming soon, so let's get on with living faithfully and living missionally and living in light of our union with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Be publicly reasonable, for the Lord is at hand. The one who is a joyful Christian is also not anxious about anything, but prayerful about everything. Look at verse 6. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. John Piper describes anxiety in this way. He says, anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. Does that sound about right? Sounds right to me. An intense desire for something and the accompanying fear of the consequences of not receiving it. Anxiety is a false prophet proclaiming that God is not sovereign and he is not good. Let me tell you that again. Anxiety is a false prophet telling you, proclaiming that God is not sovereign and he is not good. We ought not listen to false prophets. Anxiety kills our joy and it turns your worldview inward. And there are plenty of worldly antidotes to anxiety. You, you cannot turn on your TV and watch one set of commercials without finding some worldly antidote to anxiety. Wine, whiskey, yoga, essential oils. You know there are essential oils for anxiety? If you're into essential oils, I'm not making fun of you. It's fun to believe in magic. I get it. <laughs> Meditation. Maybe just drowning out the noise with your TV. There are tons of medications. There are tons of antidotes that the world offers for anxiety but Paul is going to argue here that the first and most basic antidote to anxiety is prayer. Now, let me pause. I know, and I believe, and I agree, that there are, there, you can struggle with anxiety so much that, it, that you need help from a counselor. Please, please, I'm begging you, find help. But I think it's just a general anxiety that might be in view here. And the antidote for that, the most basic antidote to anxiety, it's prayer. Present your request to God in prayer, Paul says. I love this little quote by Martin Luther. He says, pray and let God worry. I like that. Anybody nailed that? Anybody figured out how to do that in their life? Pray and let God worry. It makes me think of bowling. Any bowlers in the room? 
Zero bowlers. Okay. That's fine. Have you, are you familiar with the game bowling? Have you seen it played? Okay. I remember bowling with a guy um, who, I guess he thought that he could steer the ball after he let it go. You know what I'm saying? He would, he would do the steps and he would do it and he would be like this and he would be like, like trying to will the ball to go. Look, when you let the ball go, posturing just isn't going to help you. And the same is true with prayer. Let the prayer go to God and quit the posturing. Quit the manipulating. Let God worry about it. Present your anxieties to God. Let your requests be made known to God with supplication and with thanksgiving. D.A. Carson hit me square in the mouth when I read this quote. He said, I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. You want me to say it again or you want me to just keep on going? I've yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. Present your requests to God in prayer. Present your thanksgivings to God in prayer. Charles Spurgeon illustrates it in this way. He says, suppose you promise to make a meal for your neighbor tomorrow. You might have forgotten to do it. You might have neglected to do it. But I bet if the, the little girl who lives next door, the daughter, I bet if she comes to your house the next day with a basket, even if you forgot, I bet you'll put something in that basket. But then he goes on and says, but imagine if she came over with a basket and inside the basket was a thank you note. Thank you so much for this meal. It's going to be such a blessing to my family. Is there any chance you let that little girl leave without putting a meal in that basket? Even if you forgot, you're putting food. Y'all were Texans. You're putting food in that basket. Present your requests to God with thanksgiving. Thank God in advance, in faith that he will respond. Go ahead and tell him thanks for what you're asking for. Just try it out. See if it works. Present your request to God with thanksgiving. What does the joyful Christian look like? He's publicly reasonable. He's not anxious about anything, but prayerful about everything. And he lets the peace of God guard his heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace will guard your heart and mind. This is actually a more aggressive verb than you might think. This word is used for a military garrison, to mount guard as a sentinel. God's peace is an aggressive defense against worries and anxieties. It's an aggressive defense. God's peace will guard your heart and mind. Present your requests and your supplication to God with thanksgiving, and he will give you peace, which surpasses all understanding. I like to put it this way, peace that just doesn't make sense. Have you ever been there? Have you been facing something devastating? And you present your request to God, and you, you, you ask him for his help, and then all of a sudden you just feel this peace that just doesn't make any sense? Why would I feel peaceful about this? That's the peace of God that surpasses understanding. I was 
talking to one of my old students this week. I can't give you his name, but I can tell you he's walking through something in his family that is harder than anything I've ever had to deal with. And he's 23 years old. And I have been blown away watching him, helping him process what is going on and his, his response to it. And just this week he said, man, I, I don't really know why, but I just am so at peace about the whole thing. This is a young man whose world is on fire. His family is crumbling and he's saying, I've got this peace that passes understanding. God will give you that if you ask him for it. He will give you that. God's peace surpasses understanding. Here's a few examples that Spurgeon gives. If you hadn't caught on, I really like Spurgeon. He's pretty great. He says, think of one martyr who was about to burn for Christ. He said to the judge who was giving orders to light the fire, will you come and lay your hand on my heart? The judge did so. Does it beat fast? Inquired the martyr. Do I show any sign of fear? No, said the judge. Now lay your hand on your own heart and see whether you are not more excited than I am. That's the peace that passes understanding. He gives another example. Think of that man of God who, on the morning he was to be burned, was so soundly asleep that they had to shake him to wake him up. He had to get up to be burned, and yet knowing that it was to be so, he had such confidence in God that he slept sweetly. I have a hard time sleeping when I'm about to preach the next day. That's the peace that passes understanding. A third example. Think of that brave man who was put on a gridiron to be roasted to death and who said to his persecutors, you have done me on one side, now turn me over to the other. That's the peace that passes understanding. Listen, brothers and sisters, you can have God's peace when it doesn't make any sense for you to have it. You can walk through a fire and still feel the peace of God that doesn't make sense to the outside world. And furthermore, I bet that when you have that peace and someone notices, you'll have a great opportunity to, opportunity to tell them why you have such peace. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from God. I have prayed and let God worry. I've let that ball go down the lane. God's got it. I'm resting. Now, how do you attain God's peace? I think the answer is in our next verse, and that is set your mind on him. So firstly, we talked about standing firm in the Lord. Then we talked about getting along in the Lord. Then we talked about rejoicing in the Lord. And lastly, we are to set our minds on the Lord. Set your mind on the Lord. Probably many of you have this next verse memorized. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think carefully on the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. How do you get God's peace? Think on the Lord. Set your mind on him, what is excellent and worthy of praise. Think about what is true. That is what corresponds to the teaching of God's word and lines up with what he has said. 
Think about what is honorable. What, what has the dignity of moral excellence? Think about what is just. That is what conforms to God's standards. Think about what is pure. That is what is free from the taint of sin. Think about what's lovely, what's attractive and winsome about the Christian faith. Generosity, kindness, self-control. Think about what is commendable. That is what gives Christians a good reputation. Think on these things. Set your minds on the Lord. Paul would say it in a different letter. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. Set your mind on heavenly things. That's how you attain the peace that passes understanding. Set your mind on him. Think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. Think about what you consume. Let me ask you the question that I myself do not want to answer. What you think about and what you consume, does it meet the standards of Philippians 4.8? Is it true and honorable, just and pure, lovely, commendable, worthy, excellent? One preacher named Kent Hughes Um, he wrote this paragraph. I'm going to read it to you. Contemporary media overwhelmingly presents the antithesis of Philippians 4.8 as they have become increasingly eroticized, violent, and intolerant of Jesus Christ. And given that there is virtually no distinction between the viewing habits of Christians and non-Christians, the minds of countless Christians have become increasingly eroticized and blasphemous, which is to say sub-Christian. Today, more than ever before, we need to heed the psalmist's advice. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Perhaps there needs to be the violent refusal voiced by Jesus. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Along with the discipline of refusal, there is the ancient God-given remedy of spending much time reading and meditating on the scriptures. We cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. Anybody else get their feelings hurt or was it just me? Think about what you think about. Think about what you take in, what you consume. Is it pure? Is it holy? Does it meet God's standards? Set your mind on the Lord. I remember when I was in... um, computer class in high school. I think they teach that in like pre-K now, but when I was in uh, high school, I had to learn how to type, you know, set your fingers on home row and all this stuff. And I was reading a book, the the textbook, I guess, for homework, and it was talking about a couple of terms, um, computer terms. This may not land with all of us, and that's okay, but I learned two terms that day. GIGO, which which stands for garbage in, garbage out, And this one I never forgot, WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. Hey, beloved, when it comes to what you consume, GIGO is true. Garbage in, garbage out. What you see is what you get. I'm preaching to Andrew, not just you. Think about what you think about. Think about what you see. Does it meet God's standard?
Set your mind on the Lord. And then Paul concludes his thoughts here, at least in this section, with, um, with the exhortation to put into practice what you've been taught. Let's finish it. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Listen, the best preachers live their message. The best preachers live their message. Not perfectly. None of us can do that. And every preacher knows the feeling of standing in front of God's people and exhorting them to do something that they haven't quite gotten figured out yet. I'm doing it right now. But the best preachers put into practice what they preach. They live their message. I'm here to tell you, we have so many godly men that lead this church who do practice what they preach, who do live out the message. What you see in them, put it into practice in your own life. If God has used me to teach you anything, over this short period of time I've been with you, live it out. Follow me as I follow Christ, imperfectly, but hopefully fervently. And when you do, experience the peace of God. There's that promise there at the end. The peace of God will be with you. Let's put these four exhortations into practice. Stand firm in the Lord. Get along in the Lord for unity's sake. Rejoice always in the Lord and set your mind on the Lord. When you do this, when you put what you've been taught into practice, God will fill you with his peace and you will have what you need to live faithfully in this present evil age. Can I just conclude by saying thank you. I do love you. And it is my joy to serve you. And I am so thankful for what God has done over the last four years. But you know what I'm most excited about? What I'm most thankful about? I am, this is not self-deprecation. This is the truth. You don't need me here. There are seven elders. There is Jamie Kinman, for crying out loud. There's Sammy Pointer. There's dozens of other godly men and women who are standing firm in the Lord, putting into practice God's word. And I know that in a few weeks, when we go to North Carolina, everything's going to be great for you. I'm really thankful for that. This ministry is not going to skip a beat because God has gifted Indian Creek with so many faithful and powerful leaders. And I just want to say thank you to him. He has cared for you well. He's cared for us well. And I would also ask for you to pray because what I'm stepping into is new and it's a really big project. And honestly, it's a little scary. So would you, would you pray for me when we, when we leave? Thank you. <laughs> I'll pray for you because I love you. I really do. And I believe that if you will just do what God's word says to do, 
then you will persevere. And at the end, you will receive the blessing of the unfading crown of glory for all eternity. And I'll see you there. Let's pray.